Well, good morning, my friends. So glad you guys are here. If you were here last week, you know we started uh, a short series in the Psalms of Ascent. Uh, and Jonathan kind of introduced this idea of the Psalms of Ascent uh, by saying these are, just, these are just songs sung by Israelite travelers. They were heading toward Jerusalem, literally ascending toward Zion, toward Mount Zion. And so they sang these songs. They became called the, the Psalms of Ascent. It's Psalms 120 through 134. Uh, and the interesting thing is they were literally ascending, but there's this spiritual and, and metaphorical sense in which they're also ascending, right? They're being lifted as they sing these songs. And in Psalm 126, what we've just heard what you see is a psalm of lament. They're lamenting their present condition, their circumstance. They're asking for God to bring about His restoration, right? In the midst of this thing that they're facing, they're singing this song together, inviting God to restore His people once again. But what's so unique, and, and what I think is really kind of so beautiful about this passage, is that even as it is a psalm of lament, it's inviting us to joy. You probably caught that, that repetition, right? We're being invited to joy. The word joy in just six verses is mentioned over and over again. And then right in the middle of it, at the end of verse 3, there's this short phrase. And on that phrase, the whole passage kind of hinges. We are glad. We are delighted, it means in Hebrew. We are filled with joy, it says. It's a psalm of lament. And yet... They say in the midst of their lament, we are filled with joy. There's something beautiful about that. Joy in lament, joy in suffering, joy in our, our, our pain and our difficult circumstances, joy in the midst of uncertainty. It's this song they sung again and again in the midst of those kinds of situations. And I think all of this for us is, is kind of surprising, almost disorienting, because it's hard for us to reconcile those two things, joy and suffering. We know that we ought to. We know that that should be happening in our lives. Uh, Eugene Peterson says it really well. He makes this, this statement. Uh, Jonathan referred so much to a, a long obedience in the same direction, a book that Peterson wrote in the, the 80s. There's this quote that, that, that's really helpful. He says, Joy is not a requirement of Christian discipleship. It is a consequence. Joy is not a requirement of Christian discipleship. It is a consequence. The idea being this, like joy is not like some kind of litmus test you can apply to your life. If you have joy, then you must be a Christian. If you do not, then you're probably not really a follower of Jesus. It's not like that. But he says it is a consequence, right? We all recognize this. If you're following Jesus, if you're giving yourself to the life of the kingdom, if you're giving yourself in faithfulness and obedience as a disciple, you will experience Joy, that's a thing we believe, and yet there are so many times in our lives where joy escapes us. And it's in moments like these, moments of lament, moments where things get painful, under the weight of our circumstances, under the busyness of our lives, all these obligations that kind of press in day after day. Sometimes just the monotony of life weighs on us, and we find that the joy we once known, had once known it somehow deteriorates. It's unraveling under the weight of all of this. And sometimes it's, it's not just like one particular circumstance, right? Sometimes it, it's not just one thing. 
But joy still somehow escapes us. We can't explain it, but we find sometimes that that we live this joyless existence and we don't know why. Like when we trace our steps, when we look back, we find like we're just not experiencing joy. We long for it. We grasp for it over and over again. And inevitably, the problem is we search for joy in some cheap substitute. We're trying to find joy in any place we can and the easiest place possible, right? We long for it and we hope that maybe at some point we will be able to find it. Very often through something that that begins as as good, right? Relationships are, are good. Community is good, right? And so we say, I would be happier if I had these kinds of relationships, if I had community. That's a good thing, right? Yet, what we know to be true about our time, like we live in an era of unprecedented connectedness. We can be connected to one another in a way that's never been possible throughout history. We can stay connected to people who are on the other side of the world in a way we never could have, right? It's amazing, and at the same time, somehow, those relationships can still feel shallow and unsatisfying. And even when they don't, sometimes joy still escapes us. It's like it's slipping through our fingers, right? We seek out somebody special, and I'm not just talking like in the romantic sense. Like we want good spiritual kinds of friendships. We want intimacy in our friendships. We want those things. We seek this out. And when that fails us, we find once again, joy is just slipping through our fingers. It escapes us so often, right? And so we search for our substitute. The place we inevitably go to is, is pleasure. We search for joy in, in pleasure, right? And again, that doesn't even mean in all the seedy sort of connotations we have in our mind, right? Like we live in this adventure culture, right? Maybe if I fill my life with rich experiences, rich life experiences, maybe if I just travel more places, if I go to all these places, I see other people going, then I'll be happier, right? I just need to do that. And so we give ourselves to it. We're a group of people who are constantly going, constantly trying to see something new, discover something, and still sometimes joy escapes us. Inevitably, addictions can be traced back to this search for joy, if you think about it. It's all us trying to find a way to fill this void, to experience joy. We all know people who are trying to numb their pain, who are trying to experience joy through a substance. We all know people who are trying to experience joy simply through sex, through pornography, filling fill in the blank there, right? We, we get it. We recognize it. We see it all the time. People who are trying to find joy in a cheap substitute. And if you think about our obsession with entertainment, we forever need to be entertained, Right? We forever need something to entertain us. The idea being, right, in the midst of my painful circumstance, in the midst of the monotony of my life, whatever, I just need somebody to make me laugh. Like we're all the time searching for somebody to make us laugh because sometimes the reality of our lives is there's not much to laugh about. Either we're too busy, we've got too much going on, we don't ever get a chance to, or the news that you're hearing around you just isn't that funny right? There's just a lot of bad news and it's hard to find anything to laugh about, right? Like we find ourselves in that place. We want to attach ourselves to somebody else's story, right? I want to give myself and be entertained by a story that is more inspiring than my own. We're all the time searching for joy. We're always after joy. 
grasping for it, sometimes when we don't even realize it, and still, very often, we get nothing. The Israelites are in that kind of place. They're searching for, longing for restoration. They're, they're hoping for it. The thing they had once experienced and known in Yahweh, and they have none of it. But what's interesting is, instead of just being stuck in their present circumstance, instead of cynicism, instead of just heaviness, in their present moment, they sing this psalm. They would sing it over and over again, year after year, right? And this psalm has more than just a present mentality, right? It has this past, present, future sort of mentality to it. As they're singing this psalm, they look from their circumstance to the past. They remember what God did once. They remember the ways in which He has restored Him. They remember the joy they've experienced in Him. But they look not just to the past, right? They're looking toward the future with the expectation that just like God did this once, He will continue to do so. This is the idea. He was a restorer. He is, he, he will continue to be a restorer, the psalm is saying. History tells us it's true, and we know it will continue to be so, right? God is a restorer. He will restore our fortunes. This is a psalm that constantly reminds us that joy is not found in what I'm doing. It's not a thing I can make happen for myself, necessarily. Nor is it a thing I can lose according to what I've done or according to what my circumstances may be, right? Joy finds its source somewhere else, right? Joy comes and ultimately endures as I find a means of seeing my circumstance within the larger story of what God is doing in His world. As I can begin to see my circumstance and how it fits into God's redemptive work, there is where I find joy. This is where they're going to. They want to recognize and remember God's work and see how their story fits into that, right? No pain, no struggle, no tear goes unseen by God. That's the idea they have. Nothing is outside of the restoration he has in mind for this world. And they're reminding themselves again and again. And as we sing Psalm 26, as we read this psalm and come to it this morning, there's this invitation we look to the ways in which God has restored us and we expect He will continue to restore us. We expect He will continue to do the work He has begun. We expect greater restoration and joy that is ahead of us. This is our reality. And we keep journeying as pilgrims toward the kingdom. Just as Israel went toward Zion, we keep moving toward Zion. We keep walking toward New Jerusalem. We keep walking toward God's redemption and restoration. But... The, the first question I think we all have as we come to this psalm is, why? It's the, it's the question we always ask. In, in suffering, uh, when we find ourselves just void of, of all joy, living this joyless existence, our question for ourselves is always like, why? Why don't I feel joy anymore? Why is this part of my life so hard? Why do I feel this so heavy? We ask the same question for ourselves, and as we see the Israelites suffering, we ask that question. Why is Israel in this place? Why are they so downcast? Why are they so discouraged? What creates this situation? What circumstance led to this song? What was the first thing that made them sing this? On what occasion did that all play out? And what's interesting is the psalm doesn't tell us. 
It doesn't actually say what the circumstance is that they find themselves in. And I think that's probably on purpose. It's not about just one situation. That's what I think we're we're getting at here. There isn't just one circumstance alone that does this. Think about Israel. Think about their history. It's a collection of these kinds of instances, these kinds of moments of heaviness where they find themselves needing God's restoration. Their entire existence has been defined by these kinds of moments. We're not told what exactly it is because there's so many. Even when they look back to the past and the way God restored them, when the Lord brought back the captive ones of Zion, right? When he brought back his people, when he restored the fortunes of Zion, some translations, Mia's translation, I think it was the ESV, when he brought back the exiles, that's an attempt to try to understand what situation they're referring to, but it doesn't say overtly what they're referring back to even, right? Because there are so many stories in their past where God has restored them, right? Obviously, the most likely is when they were exiles in Babylon. That's why the ESV does that in that translation. The most likely story is that they're remembering how Jerusalem was destroyed and they were carried off to live in a foreign land and they had to figure out what it was to be God's people in a foreign place, away from the promised land, surrounded by an unbelieving people and a powerful people who had their thumb on them the whole time, right? But it may not be the exile. It could just as easily be all these other scenarios, right? Think about the time the Philistines come and and pillage the tabernacle and they take the Ark of the Covenant away from them and the people of Israel cry out, the glory has departed from us. Or go back further, right? Maybe it's the era of the judges. God's people are sinful and rebellious and idolatrous. They have no king, no one to take care of them, to protect them. And all these oppressive nations that surround them in Canaan are constantly attacking them, oppressing them, and they cry out to God for his restoration. Or go back further. Maybe it's Egypt when they find themselves living as slaves in a foreign land. We don't know exactly what it is. The point is there are so many instances where this was the case, right? Their story is one of of sorrow over sorrow over sorrow. One painful circumstance after another. It is a part of their identity. But the point of this psalm is to remind us that just as their suffering and their, their pain is a part of their identity, so also is God's restoration. They're reminding themselves of that. This marks them in the same kind of way. Our lives are no different. When we ask that question, why? We don't always get an answer. It's not always just one circumstance. When you try to figure out why you're depressed, you can't trace it to just one thing. It's not that easy. It's much more complicated, right? When you try to figure out why you don't experience joy, why you feel so distant from God or from other people, there's not just one circumstance, right? It's so many things. There are so many things in our lives that can steal our vitality, our joy. It just seeps from us. We don't always know why. But the sense we get in this psalm is it's like you can fill in the blank with whatever circumstance you have. It's on purpose. I think that's why they're leaving it so open. We as worshipers can sing this and fill it in with whatever circumstance we have. Any moment of of struggle or of depression, any heaviness or sorrow we feel, any moment of mourning, any moment of heartbreak, whatever it might be, you fill in the blank here. We're invited to call out from that place, to call out to God for his restoration. And whatever it may be, 
we will find God is a restorer. The psalmist is reminding us of this. These psalms, the psalms of ascent, are really helpful because it's like we really can. They allow us to, to bring our individual circumstances into the scope of the whole story of what God is doing, right? I'm allowed to bring my circumstance and to see it through the lens of God's redemptive history, what he's been doing the whole time. And what that means is that Israel's story of sorrow, of restoration, that story is my story. When we talk about Israel week after week, this is not like a history lesson. We're not just trying to remember these things for educational sake. When we talk about Israel, we're reminding ourselves that story, what God did then, what he continues to do, that is my story. Israel's story is my story. And as he restored them, he will restore me. There's this reminder. That story is my story, and that story is far bigger than this present moment I am living through. And I cannot forget that. Psalm 126 constantly reminds us. Last weekend, uh, April and I, had one of those rare opportunities for a date night. And um, our date night ended as date nights do at Home Depot. And uh, we were in the parking lot, and I put the car in drive. And uh, <laughs> I began to pull forward into the, the next parking place because nobody was in front of me. And it was that moment that April began to express her doubt in my decision. So I continued, and um, you guys know what happened next car comes to a halt as the tires hit that concrete parking block that is at the front of some, inexplicably, some parking places, but not others. And April immediately begins to laugh hysterically at my mistake, right? But what was interesting about that moment is I was aware as she was laughing, I knew she wasn't just laughing at this mistake because she knows that scenario has played out before. My wife is remembering something from years ago, and I know that. We both know it, okay? We both know that part of our story, right? And we're remembering it. That's why we're laughing so hard in that moment. She's remembering the time in high school. We were together, and I dragged the undercarriage of my 1990 Volvo station wagon across the top of one of those concrete parking blocks. But there was nothing I could do. You know, once you're halfway on, halfway off, there's nothing you can do but just... Right? She's remembering that, and we're both laughing. And she said something, though, something that we reflect on over the years. She made this statement. She said, I'm, I'm glad I've known you that long. I'm glad I have known you that long, right? To have been able to experience such a ridiculous scenario with me more than once, right? Our relationship has 20 years of context at this point 20 years of silly mistakes. 20 years of shared joys, 20 years of pain and hurt and failure, inevitably, right? And we have a way in our story of, of, of seeing how all of those things, these little instances, whether it be this celebration or joy or laughter, we have a way of seeing how it all fits into that larger story of our relationship. And we recognize if it is one of those moments of pain or of hurt or of failure, we recognize it does not define the whole story, right? It fits in to this larger thing, right? And Israel's doing the same thing. They're remembering. This one moment does not define the whole story. The story is bigger. They see everything happening to them right now through the lens of their history, the larger story, and they keep moving forward in that awareness. And we're invited to do the same. 
For Israel, there's this constant awareness that the moment we are living through will reveal God's faithfulness. It will reveal God's restoration. Just like they've seen his restoration before, they will continue to see that Yahweh is a restorer. And I think that's what allows them to move just beyond their past, right? They don't just look to the past. They don't just pine for those days when God did good things. They look toward their present. They recognize how that means all of this is true in the present moment. They allow it to speak to their future as well, right? After recalling it, you you heard that phrase, the Lord has done great things for us. And we are glad. We are filled with joy. We are delighted at what God is doing, right? They make this shift. You probably noticed it. From past into the present. And the whole passage hinges on that, that little transition right there. And we are glad. Even in the midst of this thing we're living through, we are glad because we know Yahweh is a restorer. And they make this transition, right? Right now, in spite of all of this, regardless of this moment we're living through, the story is bigger. What God is doing is, is, is bigger. God is at work even at this point in the story. And they have this deep conviction that that will continue to be so, right? And so they say, not just we are glad, not just God has done great things for us, they speak in that moment with a certainty that doesn't define their present moment, right? They don't know certainty right now. They don't know what's coming next. They are plagued by uncertainty and anxiety and fear and worry. And yet they speak with certainty. They say, we will reap joy. We will return with songs. They speak with a certainty that does not define their present moment. And we're invited into that same pattern. We find ourselves in all these moments of uncertainty. We find ourselves in all these moments of heaviness and sorrow. They are inevitable. And we're invited to speak with a certainty and assurance of God's restoration and His joy that is to come. It doesn't just define our past. It defines our present, our future. We are going to continue to see this, right? In Psalm 126, you see a people who are striving forward. They are endeavoring toward joy. But when it, when it comes time for them to attempt joy, to try to find joy once again, their attempts don't look the same as ours. Like culturally, this is not how we pursue joy, right? We've talked about all of our cheap substitutes, how misguided our attempts are at grasping for joy, But there's this other tendency I think we have as well. Not just cheap substitutes. We have a tendency toward trying to experience joy by removing pain. Systematically eliminating pain or suffering or struggle or difficulty from our lives. Inconvenience, whatever it might be. If I could somehow eliminate all of that. Or if I could at least diminish it then I would be a happier person. Then I would experience joy. And so we see it all the time. We're trying to remove all these things. We know people who are trying to numb their pain over and over again with a substance. We're trying to numb our pain and we don't even realize it without our distractions. We're constantly trying to distract ourselves. We try to to numb our pain. We try to to do that with, with even 
one another, right? We use people to do this over and over again. And the reverse is true as well. We want to remove any relationship, any obligation in our lives that brings about those things, difficulty or struggle or pain. If I can just systematically remove those things, then I'll be happier. And what we find is that's a lie. We do the same thing with church. People have been doing it for a long time, right? How do I remove the inconvenience from church? How do I remove the inevitable pain that I will experience in community? Go somewhere different. Maybe just don't go. Maybe church isn't for me because bad things have happened there, right? This is the way we try to do it. If I just systematically remove these things from my life, then I'll be joyful. Then I'll be happy. Then I'll find fulfillment. And yet, we hear these words. Those who sow with tears will reap with joy. Those who sow their tears will reap joy. The implication is you have to have tears. Tears are a part of your existence. They're a part of of being God's people. They're a part of following Jesus. Sorrow is a part of this thing. In Hosea 8, there's that familiar image, right? We're familiar with the idea of you reap what you sow, right? In our culture, that normally just means some idea of like karma, right? You reap what you sow. In Hosea 8, there's this, this image where Hosea is speaking to a rebellious, idolatrous, uh, sinful people, and he says to them, you have sown the wind, but you will reap a whirlwind. You've sown wind and you'll reap a hurricane, he's saying. It's only going to get worse. You reap what you sow, right? We're familiar with that image, but the psalmist here says something different. He says, if you sow your tears, you will reap joy. God sees our tears differently. God is attentive to our sorrow in a different kind of way. And the thing that we've been trying to avoid for so long and systematically remove from our lives, this experience of sorrow and pain and difficulty and struggle and inconvenience, what we find in Psalm 126 is that if we sow these things instead, they become the source of joy, right? They can produce joy for us. And that's not what we expected. It turns out sorrow is fruitful. Pain can be productive if we sow these things, right? Our pain can be redemptive, these things that we suffer through. So the sense we get is that instead of avoiding painful circumstances, or worse, instead of just growing cynical about these things that we're experiencing, we're invited. Sing your sorrow. Sing your circumstance. Fill in the blank, right? Sing these things. Sow your tears and you will see God's restoration, right? The sense is the sorrow you find yourself living through, the painful circumstance you find yourself living through, don't become cynical about it. Don't try to avoid it or tiptoe around it or find a way out of it as easy as possible. No. Don't waste it is what the psalmist is saying. Don't waste it. Sow your tears, Give yourself to these things. Don't try to tune it out. Don't try to pretend it doesn't exist. Don't think when you talk about it, it's only going to intensify it and make it worse. No. Keep sowing the seed of sorrow and pain. Keep walking, they're saying. Keep moving towards Zion. And as you go, sow these seeds. And God will produce this rich harvest 
God will give us joy from our sorrow. There's something beautiful about that, right? And no one understands that better than Jesus. No one better models it than Jesus. And nowhere more clearly reveals it than the cross. Jesus does this. It's a part of his life. You remember John 12. There's this verse. It's a powerful statement. John 12, 24. This is what he says. Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's trying to comfort them because he's been doing all this talking about dying, about suffering. And he says this. Unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. Nothing comes from it. But if the seed dies, Jesus says, then it produces many more. It produces much fruit. And as you read the rest of the Gospel of John, you know why John's telling us this. Jesus is the seed sown. Jesus is the seed that has to die in order for us to experience the fruit of what he's done, the fruit of his suffering. Jesus is the one who's done this. In the cross, Jesus is sowing his tears and his suffering and his pain. Jesus is not avoiding the cross or pain or sorrow. He's embracing it, right? Isaiah calls him a man acquainted with sorrow. He's the suffering servant. And as he sows his tears, his suffering is pain. We reap from it joy, life, salvation, right? We know this to be true. And so when we come to the table, week after week, it's an invitation into that same pattern. Even as Jesus sows his tears, even as the psalmist is inviting us to to sow our sorrows, to sing these things, to keep journeying toward the kingdom, we have that opportunity week in and week out to bring our circumstances with us to the table. Not to feel like we need to leave them at the door when we come in, but to bring them with us to the table. It makes me think of, of Paul's words. You probably remember 2 Corinthians 4. There's this really powerful statement that's made. Paul says it's 2 Corinthians 4, 16. He says, though outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly, We are being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us a glory that far outweighs them all. Our troubles, our pain, our sorrow is achieving for us glory, right? We sow tears, but we will reap joy. Paul knows it, right? When he writes this, he might have even been thinking of it. There's glory to come from our sorrow. If you think about Jesus, he, he says something later in John. It's, it's John chapter 16, 22. John's, again, Jesus, excuse me, is talking to his disciples, and he's trying to make them feel better. He's continuing to tell them about the fact that they're, they're not going to have him always. He's going to leave them. He's going to be gone soon. And he says this, you will have sorrow now. You will. There's this sense of like guarantee. You will know sorrow. You're not exempt from sorrow. You will have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take that joy from you. You will know joy. He speaks with the same certainty that the psalmist does. We will reap joy. We will return with songs. You will see me again, and you will rejoice. There's this need for all of us 
to learn, even in the midst of uncertainty, to sing with certainty and assurance. Not in ourselves, but in the larger thing God has been doing for a very long time. Far longer than I have been, far longer than this thing I've been walking through, God has been restoring God has been doing this, and I have to give myself to that. I have to trust that God will continue to do so, and I have to speak with that certainty, even in my uncertainty. God has been a restorer. He is a restorer. I expect he will continue to be a restorer. And so as we come this morning, the band's going to come and lead us into worship. We're going to come to the table. I invite you. If you need to sing your sorrow, sing your sorrow. If you need to sow tears, sow tears. And expect that God will give you joy in return. If you find yourself in a season where it's like, this feels completely disconnected, right? You're celebrating the good thing God is doing right now. Come celebrating it and expecting that that is just the beginning of the joy God has in mind for his people. This is the invitation as we come and and we worship. So I invite you into it. I don't know where your circumstances are. I don't know where you're at. I recognize the heaviness that characterizes our culture in this present moment that we've lived through the last couple of years. But I have no idea on an individual level what that may be. Fill in the blank. Give yourself in this moment of worship. Psalm 126. Sing your sorrow. Sow your tears. And allow God to produce fruit in you. A deep and abiding joy. Father, we pray that you would, through these experiences that we can't always explain or make sense of, produce joy. Even if we don't experience it today or, or tomorrow, even if this season should endure longer, God, we trust that you're a restorer. And we invite you, restore broken relationships, heal broken hearts, give joy where it's been lacking, gone altogether. They remind us that this moment we find ourselves living in is so much smaller than the larger thing you are doing. God, would you remind us that you are achieving through these things a glory that far outweighs them all. Now stir hope among us, we pray in Jesus' name.